When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. Our guest today is going to be Soledad O'Brien. She's been doing a lot of good work in journalism for a long time, have admired her work for a while, and Black and Missing is something that you can find now on HBO Max streaming, telling a story that not a whole lot of folks are telling about how black children go missing. And if you're tired of the race stuff, and I imagine many of you are because it's been everywhere, just know that Soledad O'Brien has been doing good work, and this is a journalistic piece that she's trying. It's not it's not necessarily activism, but uh, it serves as such, and she's just gathering facts on the heartbreak of some of what happens in the community of black people when children go missing. And I encourage you to watch that and get in touch with her work. I also encourage you to support the stuff we're doing around here in its video form where you can find Soledad O'Brien, YouTube slash Levitard and Friends. Some of the South Beach sessions will have accompanying video. And I encourage you to check that out, YouTube slash Levitard and Friends. But here she is again, a lot of good journalistic work over the years. I was interested in her story. So here's Soledad O'Brien. Soledad, what is your history in Cuba? What is your knowledge of Cuba, your lineage that runs through Cuba? You know, so um, my lineage is that my mom is Afro-Cuban and I've spent, I probably go every two years to Cuba to do some reporting starting when Pope John Paul II uh, was in Cuba. So that was, what year was that? 80, 90 something, 92 or something. Um, so um, I I have, uh, no, probably probably more like 96. Um, and my relatives, uh, I'd say the bulk of them are, are there uh, on the other side of it. Um, I'm not super knowledgeable about Cuba in that I have far more knowledgeable. And uh, I think sometimes a lot of what I think about Cuba is colored by my relatives and their experiences. Uh, and sometimes that can be helpful. And of course, sometimes that can undermine your ability to report uh, really well on certain things uh, in, in the country. Um, my Spanish is Spanglish. I was just out to dinner. Some of my relatives have, have made their way to Miami. And so I had dinner with them in Miami, you know, and just trying to their, their English is so much better than my Spanish. Uh, and of course, that impacts your ability to do a good job when you're reporting in the field. So I always travel with uh, my producer who's uh, fluent in Spanish. So I, I, it's kind of a complicated answer because in a lot of ways, um, I didn't learn a lot about Cuba when I was a kid. You couldn't go back. I had friends, you know, who are Puerto Rican. They go back to see their grandmas or Dominican, you know, back to 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 see their abuelitas, you know, over the summer or summer break. But if you're Cuban, it's like those people who you send money to 
Uh, and so I, I don't know that I have a very good grasp of Cuba. But you said that you go every couple of years. Is that right? Yeah, you- every two years, sometimes Be- more. Because like, why, why is that important to you? To see my relatives for one. Um, and to also, I mean, there was a big swath of time where we just didn't know our relatives at all. It's a very weird thing. I think uh, growing up without any cousins, my dad was Australian and my mom's Cuban. And so when you don't really know, in both cases, we didn't really have cousins that we grew up with. Occasionally, someone would come over and we would know them. But that was a little strange. So, yeah, definitely to go see my my cousins. And often I could pitch a story or two. So, for example, the last time I was there, we were looking at the cruise ship industry, which President Trump had sort of said, you know, if you are uh, if you're a cruise ship, you can either you can absolutely stop in Cuba, but then you can't stop in the U.S., which you know, so you started to see all those fledgling entrepreneurial businesses just die on the vine. And so I went to do a story on that, uh, but also to see my cousins and catch up with them. How sad are you when you're there? Because it's 90 miles away from America and freedom. And I imagine you see that your relatives are surrounded by a lot of limits. Yeah, it's really sad and it's it's hard. Um, I think sometimes I go and I try to support as much as you can the people who are there. So you try to go and spend money with entrepreneurs and, you know, uh, make sure that you're helping people who are trying to build fledgling businesses. Um, on the other hand, because I didn't grow up there, I don't think I have a good sense of just all that's been lost. My mother went back once and she said, never again. She said, uh, Castro ruined the country. She's like, it's just too, it was just so painful for her. So I definitely don't have that sense of walking around and feeling like it's just brutally painful. Um, But I do think as a lot of people who come and visit, you just think this is so completely fucked up. Like this could be solved in so many ways. And the people who are really hurting are the people who are, who are really trying to figure it out. And it's been, it's just been that way for, for such a long time. Uh, The pandemic, economic sanctions, the economy in general, I mean, it's just terrible. And so it's, it's really tough to see. How would you describe your upbringing to a stranger? (laughs) Uh, So my full name is Maria de la Soledad Teresa Marchetti O'Brien, which loosely translated is the Virgin Mary. (laughs) So that is how I would describe my upbringing to a stranger. Um, uh, my parents were very devout Catholics and pretty strict. You know, I think that they had very high expectations uh, as immigrants to this country. Um, they, they, they had high expectations sort of academically, but also high expectations for you put your head down. And if anything is bothering you, you just let it roll off your back and you just keep plowing through. And um, and I always thought that was a very good thing, but sometimes I think it's a it's not such a good thing. Um, you know, like I think I grew up in Long Island, and uh, my parents, you know, were if anything was was my, my mom was a, a bit of a fighter, and so she was pretty good at, at that stuff. She fought for fair housing. I mean, we were the the, the lone black slash Latino family in our community, but at the same time, I think a lot of immigrants have this. Listen. We moved here for good schools and good opportunities. Put your head down. Just keep plowing through no matter what. And so I think that's kind of how I was raised, you know, succeed academically. Uh, Put your head down if things don't go your way and just keep pushing through. 
When you say not such a good thing, what are you thinking of there? Where Because obviously they helped make you someone ambitious, someone who cared. The cultural imprinting is obvious on your work, but I can speak to that mentality sometimes being joyless where you, uh, where you just, you, you just humbly accept whatever it is that's in front of you because that's the immigrant and exile way of being grateful that ever, for everything this country gives you. And I think it also doesn't necessarily help feeling like you belong. You know, there's a lot of work that I've been reading recently. People talk a lot about diversity, uh, equity, inclusion. It used to be diversity, then it was diversity and inclusion, then it was diversity, equity, inclusion. But now it's moved to belonging. And I think actually that's the most interesting piece of it for me. Because belonging is kind of how everybody wants to feel in a workplace, right? It's not just, hey, listen, there are X number of people. It's really about like, well, do people feel like they want to work here because they feel like their, you know, their ideas are are useful, right? I mean, and so I have been reading a lot about the science of belonging and the measurement of belonging. And I, I do think when your strategy is put your head down, don't say anything, just keep marching forward. You know, you don't necessarily fight for the belonging part of it so much. And so, um, and I do. I think it 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 means that I liked growing up in Long Island a lot. It was a very great place to grow up. But at the same time, I was very happy to leave. Like, I don't look back and think like, oh, if I could just get back to my hometown. Um, uh, it's very beautiful. Um, and there's lots to, to recommend Long Island. But still, it's and I think when you don't feel like you belong, you know, you're kind of like, yep, I got out of it what I needed. And then we moved on. I don't know that that's such a good feeling for creating community, actually. What didn't you fight for that you should have been fighting for because you were keeping your head down? You know, that's a great question. Uh, and I don't I've only just started researching the science of belonging. So I'm not sure I've thought it through fully. Um, but I, for example, you know, at one point, probably when I was in about eighth grade, you begin to realize that all the books you're reading. And remember, I went to high school in the 80s. So these conversations were not happening at all. But you begin to realize like, oh, there are all these books that don't really, you know, represent a wide swath of, you know, you tick off the great books, but they're not super um, representative. You know, there are some really interesting books that we could have been reading that we just didn't. In fact, when you go to college, you sort of open up your reading more. So we read, you know, uh, The Red Badge of Courage. Um, oh, my gosh. You know, think of every there was some a middle march you know? and. You know, and I we just kind of sucked it up. But I, I think now if I were a parent in the school, I'd be like, wow, there's all these other more interesting books that are written by diverse authors, not just African-Americans, but lots of really interesting, diverse authors that we should talk about. Should we be putting them in the curriculum? Should we be doing a reading club? I mean, that just wasn't a conversation that was ever happening. Um, and so I, I think things like that, where you could say, uh, the community that I grew up in is much more diverse now. I mean, it used to be people were very, uh, a handful of people were very hostile to the black people who moved into my town. Um, like they did, did literally didn't want them there. I mean, my parents couldn't buy a house in our neighborhood, you know, um, it, you know when they got married in the sixties, you know, so people were very clear, like we literally don't want you. We can't make it more clear that we will not show you a house. We will not sell you a house. There'll be people who will march in your driveway. Um, so, you know, and I think uh, it wasn't really a big deal, right? My dad went and got a house. Um, families where people were protesting kind of put their head down. And if they wanted to live there because it was a good neighborhood with good schools, they kind of got through it. 
and their kids enrolled. You know, everybody was like, there was no critical mass of like, this is kind of crazy. <laughs> what? Um, now, it's just a different time. But I guess that's what I mean by um, thinking about like, well, how can this community be for everybody? And, and what are really your issues uh, so we can we can solve them? What are the other things that leave a mark in not belonging as you look at your past? Um, you know, I think what ends up happening probably more in the workplace is that you edit yourself. And I actually, I mean, in most of the jobs that I had in the last, say, 10 years or 15 now, 20 years, you know, I had a lot of clout. Right. So if I said something, I could move the needle quite a bit, you know, but I do think you you um you edit what you're trying to say because you're very worried. You don't want to be perceived as unpleasant, right? Or or that girl, right? I, 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 I've sort of embraced now being that girl, but, but there was a time when it's like, oh God, Soledad's going to advocate for more women. Oh God, she's raising her hand. She's going to wonder why there are no more Latinos working on this documentary about Latinos, you know, and, and she's going to push back. And, you know, when you're young in your career, who wants to be that person? I remember giving advice to a young guy who I worked with at NBC News who um, who was uh, gay and he was um, like NBC at the time had a, uh, I'm sure they still do had a like a they didn't call it employee resource groups, but that's what it was back then. That's a relatively new naming of it. And and I remember all the things that he wanted to fight for. And he was a very young producer. And I, I told him and I think this was accurate advice. Maybe it wasn't good advice, but like you realize, like if you become this guy as a 23 year old young producer, it's going to kill your career. Right. If you are the guy early on advocating, it's the older people who've been there a long time, who have some clout, who can better navigate that. But what what terrible advice? I think it's accurate at the time was accurate. But still, I mean, he left news eventually. But, you know, I sort of understand that this idea of I don't it, it, I can either advocate hard for gay rights or I can as a young gay guy in a newsroom or I can keep my mouth shut and get good assignments and work with a lot of people, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm not sure that's a choice people should have to make. When and how did you come about embracing that when you say I became I that person? Yeah. <laughs> I think there is a lot of um you just don't give a shit at a certain age. So probably around 50, I think you really do. I mean, I think one of the nice things about getting older truly is being like, yeah, no, you know, maybe my role is to be that girl because I'm not at the beginning of my career and I, I have a fair amount of clout and, and I, I'm now self-employed so I can really run a lot of projects the way I want to. And I can say, whether it's with people that I work with or places where I have, you know, where I'm, I'm trying to get a job, you know, if something's important to me, I'm really not too hampered by saying this is what I'm going to need. Uh, it happens all the time. I mean, I've done projects where I'd say, listen, I'm looking at the, we're doing a show that's literally the subject is about diversity and the crew is not very diverse. I mean, so you realize that every time we bring a guest in, right, you know, you should know that they're doing this, huh? Okay. <laughs> so we should just think about that. I don't think it's a, I don't think the job is a job of yelling at people, do what I need you to do. But I think it's a, let's only send messages that we want to send. Cause here's a message we're sending and I'm not sure we want to send it. And I'm not even sure you realize it's a message you send. Uh, and so I think to be that person is actually quite helpful. And I think I'm now old enough to be able to have a lot of credibility on that front. A lot has changed over the years, kind of like who's the best hockey team in Florida. But one thing that hasn't, the great taste in Miller Lite. 
Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Well, the light sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. Right now, the great debate is if my team will make it past the second round. We can find about this all throughout the series, but there's one thing that's for sure. I'll be yelling at all of you while drinking a nice ice-cold can of Miller Lite. It's my preferred light beer when arguing about sports with other people. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How do you come about making for Peacock then a documentary about Rosa Parks? Like, what are the pieces that have to come in place on your imprinting for you to decide, I'm going to do this for the first time, right? It's not like this has been chronicled before. Yeah, no, it's amazing that they haven't done a Rosa Parks documentary. Um, first and foremost, I have to be interested in it. I mean, and I have a, a, I'm pretty curious about a lot of things. So we've just finished a doc about a guy who who mailed himself literally out of prison. <laughs> he escaped from prison three times, a third time mailing himself out. Um, so uh, he's now he was caught. And now he's in Supermax. Uh, and so we did a, a two part uh, series uh, for discovery on that. And and so not everything is about race and class and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it just has to be interesting to me. But in the Rosa Parks case, there there was a great book about Rosa Parks, which is basically just how people, I think, the mythology of Rosa Parks is that she's very meek. She was just tired. She sat and, you know, decided she wouldn't get out of her seat. That mythology is not quite accurate. Rosa Parks was truly kind of a badass and had been for a long time. She was truly an activist and she was um, the kind of the right person to do a thing that they were trying to do in the bus boycott. Uh, and so I thought that, you know, I, I love when we get to kind of jump into history and, and, explain things better to people, especially a history everybody thinks they know. Um, my kids, I remember when they were little and learning about Rosa Parks used to say, yeah, Rosa Parks, she wouldn't get on the bus. I'm like, what? Yeah, she wouldn't get on the bus. She said, nope, I'm not getting on the bus. I'm like, oh, gosh. Um, but, but that's kind of how it's taught, right? These little phrases, you know, she wouldn't move her seat. She wouldn't as opposed to a little more uh, nuanced and complex. And so the truth is that the book was amazing. The author of the book um, was reached out to by a couple of uh, directors that I know that we wanted to work with. And we basically um, are going to all pull that together. But it's just a great, interesting story. I mean, it's, it's it is it interesting to us. There's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't do um, just because I don't think it's super interesting or I don't think it's it's. Um, I don't love reality too much um, uh, because I think I like people's real responses, not kind of um, acting responses. I like watching it sometimes, but I don't. um, But I I don't know that that would be something that would really move me to want to spend a lot of time on producing. 
cliff notes how did the inmate mail himself out of jail <laughs> you'll have to watch it's on discovery plus uh it's called um what is it i can't believe that i do not remember it's gonna pop into my head this is the other downside of being old um that's all right. We'll circle back around and get the name. You, I know you're gonna you're gonna get stuck here. We will look it up for you and we will bail you out. But I you, you're gonna it's have like to give me the cliff notes while we're, while we're looking it up for you. Filibuster for me on giving me the details. How it's did so the inmate good. escape from jail, mailing so himself good. out of jail? So he is such a smart guy who also killed a guy, but he mailed himself out. When he finally third breakout, he 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 got a job in the mail room, and he wrapped himself in mail bags. A job in the in the in the the mail bag repair room, in the in the prison. That's what they did, right? The the cheap labor meant that they would repair these mail bags, and they would wrap them up and then wrap them in plastic and then put them on a a, a pallet, right, and and ship it over the walls of the prison. So he put himself in the middle of one, wrapped himself up, put talcum powder around the plastic wrap so that it wouldn't really stick, put a little, um, made little tubes so he could breathe and stuck food on his body. And they lifted him out of the, out of the uh, prison, uh, over the walls of the prison. And he was able to go free for about 18 months. And he was on the lam. Interestingly, it's so crazy. Like he would record video of himself. There's a video, I think it's been seen like 16 million times on YouTube of a cop that stops him in uh in louisiana and says yeah we're looking for a guy but the the description wasn't completely accurate and he sweet talks his way out of it um his name is richard lee mcnair and you can google it i mean it's it's amazing it's a great story of a guy now he eventually was caught and how he got caught um, is, is also an amazing story because canadian authorities caught him and they didn't believe he was acting very suspiciously, but they didn't believe that he was one of the 10 most wanted people. He had to kept telling them, you guys got someone big. I'm one of the most wanted people. And, and they're like, yeah, shut up. You know, we got some guy in the back of our, our vehicle. It's a crazy story. I think it's called, is it Prison Breaker? The Prison Breaker is what it's yeah, called. You know, we, yes. we had like, you have your working title, then you have your real title. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really great doc. And that's on Discovery uh, Plus right now. Right now on HBO, HBO Max, Black and Missing, how did you get involved with Black Missing Persons cases? Uh, does the Is the start of this outrage or is the start of this being appalled somewhere because Black Missing Person cases uh, are neglected in ways that often uh, aren't true of other uh, nationalities, ethnicities? I think I would say it started by being exhausted, honestly, right? Because you... I've covered, by the way, all of those boldface name missing young women, white women stories, all of them. And it's terrible. I mean, I can't sometimes I would just think like I cannot imagine being the parent of a young woman who goes missing. It, it, it And then they, they get up and they do press conferences. Right. And they beg for things. I mean, it's 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 horrific. And I used to think like I, I don't think I'd even be able to get out of my bed if that ever were to, God forbid, happen to me. So, you know, I've done a lot of those stories. And then you start to realize like, wow, on the day that um, Lacey Peterson went missing, all these other people went missing, too. Hmm. Why? Why is the story of Lacey Peterson as crazy as it is and worthy, I think, of covering, certainly. But why are all these other people not worthy? And what you begin to realize is that there's a real bias that that uh, I think media, but also sometimes law enforcement have a sense of like what's a what's a good, if you will, um, uh, person to cover. Are they pretty? 
you know, is the story an interesting backstory? Are they wholesome? Um, you know, and so sometimes law enforcement would even say, well, we think this person is a runaway. But, you know, if they're 15 and a runaway, they're, they're still missing. And so it was very interesting to us. So I, I've really been thinking about that a lot over the years. And then about three years ago, we started working with the Black and Missing Foundation about how to tell this story, this in documentary form. And in that time, as you well know, there have been many high profile missing white girl cases and kind of proving, I think, the 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 point of the doc to some degree, which is a lot of these cases just don't get the attention. The women, uh, the sisters-in-law who, who run the Black and Missing Foundation would say it's it's not just the media and it's not just law enforcement, but also community also has to decide that these girls are valuable um, and, and make us think about it because that, you know, it's it's this it's this uh, circle, right? It's it's if the media brings attention, then law enforcement feels the pressure. And if the community brings attention, then the media feels the pressure, you know? And so um, really kind of helping get that narrative going around how do you make sure that everybody who's missing um, has their their story told and is looked for um, was really a goal of this documentary. It airs, by the way, on the 23rd and 24th of this month of November uh, on HBO. Broad question, but when you talk about belonging and you talk about everything from the imprinting of eighth grade books and the red badge of courage to learning as a journalist, oh, wait, right around me, these stories are covered differently. What do you make from that perspective of what's happened in America and this country that you love over the last four years? You know, I think... One of the challenges in this country, because we're really reluctant in a lot of ways to have conversations about race that are not um, super easy, right? They're, they sort of need to be navigated. Um, and so I think you, you just see it come out, you know, in, in these little fits and starts and, and you know, fights in uh, school boards uh, about, you know, and, and people suggesting burning books, right? Which all is just craziness. But at its core to me is the sense of, we really haven't come to grips with American history. Um, we love in this country, and maybe every country, a really sanitized, sometimes bullshitty view of American history. Uh, uh, you know, Christopher Columbus is a really good example. Um, I did not know until I was well into my college years anything you know outside of what I learned in school. Christopher Columbus, uh, and 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 I don't think somehow that diminishes his discovery, right? I do think understanding all the pieces of the person as you're celebrating and pointing out what he did is, is interesting too and important and it's actually accurate. So, you know, so I think you start figuring out that we just haven't really wanted to sit down and talk about um, uh, kind of the way it actually was. And I'll give you an example. You look at, I think it was Bill O'Reilly who grew up in Levittown, if I'm not mistaken, in Long Island. Well, you know, and he, and he talked about his family. And sometimes people say my family, you know, came from modest means or they were hardworking or they're working class people. All true. Absolutely. Amazing backstories, certainly. But just note, my family couldn't live in Levittown because they didn't let black people buy in Levittown. So as those real estate values have gone up and done better, and the people who live there who were hard workers, and in many cases, very good people, they had a value that you know, grew the value of their homes. They built wealth while other people couldn't. I mean, it's just, you know, and I think sometimes we don't put the those things, we don't really explain them or that, you know, the GI Bill, which allowed, if you were a GI, you could go to college except not if you were black, 
right? Like that's a big exception. <laughs> so it's, it's those kinds of things. I, I don't think, you know, like to me, it's not about, you know, stealing somebody else's glory. It's just about saying like, well, let's just actually accurately explain how it was. I think that's kind of the strategy. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Another broad question, but your thoughts on the state of journalism as you continue to do very strong, thorough, uh, fair work that I think has sort of morphed into activism on occasion, but activism that is, um, you know, buoyed by fact. I was thinking about that the other day because someone called me an activist and I'm like, I guess if, 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 if the question is like, are you against racism? Yes, for sure. Are you against uh, trafficking of young women? A hundred percent. I mean, am I an activist? Because I feel yes. I, if that makes you like fully a hundred percent against, should people be killed? No. Yeah, I, I think that's that's bad. So, you know, uh, pedophilia, terrible. So, I mean, in a way, I feel like yes, there are certainly things that I feel very strongly about that are right and wrong, and I would never, as a journalist, go into like you know, let's really talk about if being a racist is okay. I just don't think that's, that's the way to do it. So I'm not sure I'm an activist in the, um, in a, the classic sense of, I, I don't go on marches. I just try to tell stories about things that I think are undercovered. And the idea that that in and of itself is activisty, which is not really a word, but is kind of unusual, right? I mean, that you're just trying to insert people back in a narrative where they've kind of been missing. So I, I guess I don't think of myself truly as your as a, as a classic activist, and I've never really had an interest in, in doing that. Um, I think it's much more of saying, well, you know, let's just talk about the actual thing that happened uh, and and really make sure people are clear on some of the. But the reason the, the reason I ask you about the state of journalism, though, is because oh, you yeah. are you you have <laughs> your imprinting and you are interested in storytelling and you are a fair storyteller. But you've seen what has happened to the news where it has become side taking and it has become politicized and the, the, the kind of journalism that you're doing, I think most people, most reasonable people can embrace but that's not exactly the state of journalism yeah i think i think you're talking about political journalism and i'm not really a political journalist so i i do think it's messy and and i don't even think it's about side taking is the big problem i think the the a lot of the problem is this idea that that everything is equal you know that that they just really don't want to call a thing a thing i remember in the trump presidency trying to you know encourage the new york times to what did, what did, I think it was I think it was Maggie Haberman who said something was just factually factually untrue. And you're like that's a lie, right? When someone lied, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't say to your kid well, that is factually untrue. You'd be like, don't lie to me. And so I think there was this tremendous hesitancy to to just back off and not say things very clearly and directly. And I'm not 100% sure why, but many journalists do it or even to do this both sides. Well, you know, 
Hillary's doing this and Trump's doing that. And I think that's just a very problematic way of, of framing. There was a, a great example the other day in The New York Times about the Kyle Rittenhouse um, uh, uh, um, trial. And it, it's it was this long winded, you know, he was a young man who was looking for belonging in a team, you know, in a community. Then you're like, literally, this is such a bizarre. I mean, what makes someone frame it this way when there's 10 other ways to think about framing a story? So I, I do think framing more than anything is what drives me crazy about our political journalists, because I think they um, I think they fail on that front a lot. So I, I think political journalism in this country is a mess because they don't know how to deal with people who lie. Um, you know, I personally don't put people on TV who lie. If you lie, I just you just won't come back. And I and listen and I, I'll, I'll let you go to the the line of spinning, of overstating, of bragging. But but like an out and out lie is problematic. And I remember when Kellyanne Conway, you know, talked about alternative facts and Chuck Todd's reaction was not. We don't do that here in on this show, which is meet the press. We deal in facts, we deal in inaccurate facts and information. And so if you want to deal in alternative facts, you cannot be on this show. He was booked on a zillion shows after that. He kind of giggled through. I mean, if you go back and watch the clip, he sort of giggled through that. I mean, I just think that's that's kind of where we are. And that's very disappointing, obviously, to me. What pisses you off? Um. I think uh, when you see things that are so clearly written by journalists who just need clicks, and I, I know they do, because often people will send me their articles and say, you'd really be helping me out if you could you know, boost this, because that's how they're, you know, that's how they're measured. Right. It's it's sort of a, you know, did it did it glom onto people's hearts and minds? And listen, I, I know perfectly well, having done um, a lot of documentaries, there are documentaries I did that were phenomenal that nobody watched. And there are documentaries that I did that were like, yeah, it's all right, <laughs> that people love, I, you know? And so this idea that, you know, sort of your your worth is is based on clicks, I, I just don't think, um, I don't think that has to be a hard and fast or should be a hard and fast rule. And so I think that what drives me crazy is this idea that, um, you know, I'm going to spin this tweet or whatever for social media, because I need people to be outraged and click through it when we and you read the story and the story is nothing like that. It's it's just inaccurate framing, but it it does help move the story along. Did you know what you wanted to be early in life? Yeah. Uh, first, I was going to be a hot walker at the racetrack. A hot walker is like, I think they have machines for it now, but it's just the girl who walks the hot race um, the race horses when they get too hot after they run. So that was I was going to walk them around. I don't I don't know how what kind of a how good that job would be. Uh, and then I was going to go to to be a hairdresser. Uh, and then I uh, when I was in college, I was going to go to medical school. So I had done a lot. Actually, I was a nursing aide, a nurse's aide. Um, and I, I which, by the way, paid amazingly well. I mean, at the time when the the minimum wage was three thirty five, I was making ten bucks an hour because I, I had a certificate. I, I had a license to be a nurse's aide. And um and then I worked in a pharmacy, kind of did all these things in order to become, um, to, to go to medical school. And then I really realized that it was just not my passion. It wasn't for me. So, so it was really from then that I discovered journalism, mostly by working in a newsroom and realizing like, oh, I have some skills here. Maybe this could be for me. But I, I didn't start off with like a, a deep passion for journalism when I was you know, 10 years old. 
Did you end up in the medical field because it's something that the culture or your family thought would be good for you as opposed to something that you simply loved? That's such a great question. You know, my parents were pretty cool about that stuff. They never had any um, designs on uh, on what someone should be. So I don't think uh, I never thought that that they didn't put pressure on. I mean, I had lots of friends who were like, you should be a doctor because I'm from Long Island. I'm like, what? You should be a doctor, but uh, not my parents. But I, I think I definitely felt like that was a career that was good and useful and, um, you know, and, and like a really good career. Uh, I didn't have a lot of examples of others. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a professor. and I knew I didn't want to be in uh, academia so um, or teaching. But um, but I thought and I liked helping people was kind of my 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 gut. But I think what ends up happening is you begin to recognize, well, there's lots of ways to help people. And you just have to figure out the way that's most interesting for you. What are you proudest of professionally? Oh, professionally, I was going to say my kids. Um, no, I wasn't going to let you do that, though. That's why I threw <laughs> well, the professional You know, it's really true, though. I got to tell you, though, that is not a lie because you see your kid do something nice and you think like, wow, that's that's pretty great. Um, uh, proudest of professionally, I think a real turning point in my career was my coverage of Hurricane Katrina. And um, partly we just were working a ton and we were on air a lot. But I think for me in, in my head, it was a moment when I began to understand this idea that, um, you know, uh, the story is not about a storm, that there was this whole world of undercovered things about access and opportunity and who's valued and who's not, you know, and, and if a bunch of people in suburban Connecticut, you know, were underwater and sitting on their rooftops, I can guarantee you that they would have been picked up a lot faster than the folks in New Orleans were, you know, and so you sort of see that laid out. Um, and as a relatively youngish reporter, you know, you begin to understand like, oh, shit, how do I connect the dots on this? This is very complicated, but it's certainly not just a storm. And it's not just about haves and have nots. It's a combination of what motivates people. And, and again, I think it's where I get interested in covering policy, right? Because it's who's valued is always reflected in, in policy. Um, we can see it very clearly where where highways off ramps go really tells us a lot about, you know, and don't go tells us a lot about who's valued and who has clout and who has, you know, who able who's able to get politicians to work for them and, and who cannot. I think that was the start of me trying to figure those things out. What do your parents call you growing up? Like it, when did you become Soledad? Uh, and you you did say, right, you said named after the Virgin Mary. You're, the full name is the Virgin Mary. Yeah, well, Maria de la Soledad is Mary of the Solitude. Um, so I, uh, because I'm from Long Island, I was solely S-O-L-I with a heart over the I-E when I was in elementary school, middle school, and probably a little bit of high school. And then when I went to college, I became Soledad, although some people kept calling me solely. Um, so, uh, you know, and you know, as you know, when you're in trouble, you're soledad. Um, Sol, my dad was Australian, so he said, "Hey, Sol." <laughs> um, and uh, my siblings called me Soli, and my best friends called me Soli. Um, my coaches called me O'Brien or Obi when they were yelling at you to go do stuff. Um, so, kind of, I always could tell how I knew somebody by what they called me. Could you tell, how could you tell that your parents were different, that their union was different beyond the idea that you weren't welcome in certain places? Um, you know, 
I don't think their union was very different, different at all. I think they were strictish parents. You know, when I got married, I think um, my husband's parents, we actually were raised very similarly in every which way. You know, parents who were who had rules and were kind of strict, but also I don't think wanted to put a lot of pressure on you to, to accomplish things, um, but they definitely had high expectations. I think there was a sense of never said, certainly, but, you know, like a lot's been given to you. You've had a lot of opportunities, so you kind of should run with it. And, you know, no one ever did a to whom much is given, much is required. Um, I think I, my, my dad certainly didn't speak like that, but it was kind of expected. Like, you know, you've got this great opportunity. Don't screw it up. But you saw them working hard, correct? Like you saw, oh, yeah. like you, you didn't have any choice other than to embrace uh, the immigrant mentality. Yeah, you know, I think I was very fortunate and my husband and I run a small foundation now. And I think what, what you realize very quickly is there is a tremendous advantage in being middle class, right? Which is, uh, I mean, I had parents who were together, their jobs were never in jeopardy, you know, to, to, a lot of the students that we take in and we give scholarships to, you know, they have parents who are in and out of work. Um, they have parents who may not be together. They have domestic violence in their lives. Right. And you just like my, my childhood was just boring. It was very stable. It was very boring. Um, and you look back now and you think, wow, that's incredibly lucky. That's a real advantage to never have to. I mean, a lot of my scholars would think about like, I'm not sure when I'm going to have a chance to eat today or if I have enough money to eat over the next three days. Like we never had that. My parents didn't have a ton of money, but they they never had no money. And so they would say to us, of course, I'm not gonna buy you designer jeans. As, you know, I was in the era when Jordash came out. My mother's like, first of all, those are too tight. Nobody needs to see you're behind. And also who's spending $60 on jeans? You know, it's ridiculous. But, but a lot of our scholars, you know, it literally was, we might lose the house, we might lose our jobs, or they did lose their jobs. So I really went through life feeling like I was just very lucky to have that sense of stability in your life, you know, just feeling like very stable. Uh, and that's what we've tried to give the young women we have in our foundation. Like, you know what, we're going to figure it out. Your, your tuition is going to be paid for till you graduate. And by the way, you're going to graduate or we're all going to die trying, but you're going to get through. And I think um, that to me was really critical. Uh, and so, yeah, my parents were hard workers, but I also learned what it meant to be in an office. A lot of my scholars, their parents didn't work in an office. They, they have no idea. And guess what? When you see your mom and dad in an office, you know what to wear to an office. You know how to behave in an office because you grew up in an office. My kids grew up in TV studios. They utterly exactly know how as little kids, they used to plant on the floor and no, do not lift your head up. You're going to get hit by the jib at some point, you know, like they know TV news very well. Those are advantages you get in how to navigate that not everybody gets. Her new show on HBO is called Black and Missing. All episodes are available to stream on HBO Max. If you're interested in that foundation she was talking about, Powerful is what it is called. How can they find that? It's mentoring women, sending them to college. It's a foundation you started about a decade ago. How can they find that? Yeah, we're online at Powerful Foundation, F-D-T. Um, so you can find us online or you can just hit me up. I'm on uh, Twitter and actually every social media at Soledad O'Brien. Thank you. Appreciate your time and appreciate your work, Soledad. Thank you for spending this time with us. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you for having me.
Our thanks to Soledad O'Brien, and again, a reminder to support the Levitard and Friends Network. We appreciate what you guys have already done for us, helping us leave Disney and do this on our own. And by supporting the Levitard and Friends Network and its properties, uh, you are supporting us. So thank you for doing that. Next week, it's going to be much more personal with Adam McKay, who's become a friend. And Adam McKay's got a giant movie coming out, probably one of the most star-studded movies that's ever been put together in terms of cast. And we're going to talk to Adam McKay about a Vanity Fair piece that talks about his breakup with Will Ferrell. So I'm very interested in you guys hearing that. We'll do that next week. A lot has changed over the years, kind of like who's the best hockey team in Florida. But one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. Right now, the great debate is if my team will make it past the second round. We can find about this all throughout the series, but there's one thing that's for sure. I'll be yelling at all of you while drinking a nice ice cold can of Miller Lite. It's my preferred light beer when arguing about sports with other people. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com slash Beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.